Amen. And good morning. What a fun morning we've had so far. If you've been able to be with us, you know how fun it's been, as Sharon said, with the baptisms and the commissionings and the ministry celebrations. I think maybe in some ways it's a small blessing for me that we've shortened the services on either end because I found out on Friday that my congestion that I've been struggling with has turned into bronchitis. So, yeah, it's not too fun, but uh, I will try not to... uh, you know, hack up a lung and blow your ears out uh, this morning, but uh, I can't promise anything, so just be prepared. You might need to plug them quickly, but at least I can, uh, it'll be a little bit shorter message this morning, and I think we can get through it together. Why don't we pray and ask God to bless this time of looking into his word? God, we do thank you that you have blessed us so richly in so many ways, not least of which is the gift of your word. As we look to the scriptures again today, God, would you open them to us in a new way? Would you speak to us through your spirit, what you would have us hear about how your word applies to our lives so that we can go from here this morning knowing that we have been shaped and changed by the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. We continue on with our series on faith works, going through the letter of James, and we're going to be picking it up in chapter 5, looking briefly this morning at verses 1 through 6. And uh, you'll see pretty quickly that we have another very cheery, encouraging word from James this morning. Not really. (laughs) In verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Oh, joy. (laughs) Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Cheery. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this is actually a word of hope. Now, I'll take a few minutes and try and explain what I mean. The primary problem James is addressing here is not wealth. The wealth is not the problem, it's the desire for wealth and possessions that leads us as human beings to create unjust systems and oppression in the world because we try and grab at things and take them away from other people, which leaves some people having more and other people having a lack. And in a culture like James's, where the rich were gloried in their social status and position, it was very common for the wealthy landowners to take advantage of the less fortunate in order to pad their own purses. So James' intensity here, and really what commentators say is he's moving from a teaching style to a prophetic style. He's taking the voice of the prophet because he's talking in the future tense. He's saying, look at the wealth that you have, and the wealth that you have will corrode. It will rot. It will not produce what you hope it will produce in your life. 
His prophetic voice signals that he's wanting to shake people up, to get them to open their eyes and to pay attention to the reality of how the world is actually working around them, and that many of the wealthy were, in fact, oppressing the poor. And if these people also happen to claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and have found themselves in these early fledgling churches, then this was especially a big deal for James. That's why he says you should weep and wail because if you open your eyes and you recognize that perhaps you as a wealthy landowner are a part of this oppression, then hopefully it will begin to break your heart that you have been contributing to the oppression of God's people. Especially if they also recognize that all their wealth won't mean a hill of beans in the end. We all know that wealth will not lead to happiness. And yet, in our culture, we are conditioned over and over again to reach for more and more and more, thinking that if we can just have a little bit more money in our bank account, then maybe we'll be happy. But we know they've, they've done research where they've talked to some of the wealthiest people in the world, and they ask them over and over again, how much is enough? And the answer is always the same. Just a little bit more. Right? Just a little bit more. Because we're never content or happy with what we have because happiness and contentment doesn't come from our wealth. It comes only from God. So James is not saying that it's wrong to be wealthy, but the wealthy have not sought to use their wealth to help alleviate the suffering of the poor. They have not seen their wealth as a gift from God to be used to be a blessing to other people. Instead, they've hoarded their wealth. They've stored it up and they're clinging to it as a source of security, as a source of pride, as a, as a way of glorifying themselves and having greater social status in their culture. Un- unwittingly, excuse me, They end up creating the very unjust society for others that James is concerned about. We also can recognize in James' teaching some of the words of Jesus, right? We can go back to the Jesus tradition that James is building on. uh, Jesus in Matthew 6.20 said, Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And he goes on in verse 21 to say, Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. You see, for James and for Jesus, it's not a wealth issue, it's a heart issue. He's not concerned about the money itself, he's concerned about what wealth and money can do to our hearts. And so James is wanting to use the strongest language possible, the prophetic word to challenge Christians to look at the world around them and to understand how wealth can get us off track on the path that God would have us walk. This is a dark passage, but as dark as this passage is, in a prophetic tradition, again, I want to suggest to you that embedded in here, it's a message of hope for those who suffer in poverty and oppression. Verse 4 said, God has heard the cries of those who are suffering. It's not skip over that too quickly. God has heard the cries of those who are suffering. Does that hearken us back to any other biblical stories where people were crying out to God? Maybe the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt and Moses, and God comes to Moses and says, I have heard the cry of my people. Therefore, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. You see, God is saying that his heart is with the oppressed. His heart is with the broken. His heart is with the downtrodden. 
And he wants our heart to be with his heart. He wants to put his heart in us so that we also can look at the world around us with God's eyes. One commentator suggests that the translation in the NIV isn't quite accurate. It says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. But he says it should read the Lord of hosts. Which if you think about what the Lord of hosts means, it's, it's the Lord of the angel armies coming on behalf of those who are suffering, those who are being oppressed, those who are under the thumb of the rich rulers who would seek to use them and abuse them. And so this word is a word of hope to anyone who has suffered, anyone who has been oppressed, anyone who has been bullied. We can see in this prophetic word not only a challenge to our own sense of wealth and status, which as Americans, I think we have to admit that we are some of the wealthiest people on the planet, but also to those who are suffering and hurting. God's heart is with those who suffer. And so we see as the Lord of hosts, God is actively moving to overcome the injustice of this world. And if you're not with him, then you're against him, as we've learned earlier in this series. I remember my first mission trip to Mexico. I was in high school and we went to Mexicali, Mexico with a student mission trip. And we went and slept in tents in a dirt field for a week. And we got partnered up with a local church and we did VBS with the kids and and their families. And as we got to know some of the families, they invited us to come into their homes. And I was astonished to find that some of these people lived in abject poverty right across the border from our own country with dirt floors and no running water and no electricity. And yet the joy that they had and the the welcome that they gave us and how they fed us and, and, and just treated us as part of their own family, I was astonished to see how dramatically their lifestyle was different than my own. But you know, the real kicker for me was one of the evenings we would gather as students and we would worship in the evening after having worked during the day, excuse me. And one of the speakers shared with us, he said, do you understand that 75% of the people in the world live like these people do right here? And I was blown away as a young man realizing that my experience of life here in America was vastly different than most of the people on the planet. That most of the people on the planet live on less than $10 a day and many of them even less than that. I mean, that's $300 a month. I can't imagine what it would be like to try and live on $300 a month. Can you? It'd be a very different lifestyle. And the reality is that most of the people in the world live that lifestyle, not ours. Inequity and injustice continue to be a problem in our world. And even if we are not actively and directly oppressing people ourselves, we have to admit that we, excuse me, live in a world system where not everybody's following Jesus. And there are people with wealth and power that are abusing and oppressing people around the world. And if we're not a part of the solution, then we could be a part of the problem, James is telling us. So what can we do about it? First of all, I'd like to suggest that we can allow God to have his word open our eyes, to shake us a little bit, to have these kind of dramatic passages in the Bible take us seriously or we take them seriously and not skip over them too much and say, oh, well, that's not me, but to maybe feel the sting a little bit of how God's heart is for those who might be suffering that we might not even be aware of in our world. Second, 
we can allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to work on changing our hearts. The world says, love things and use people. But God's Word says, love people and use things. So how can we begin to find somebody else who's in need and go and serve them? That's one of the advantages of getting involved in ministry and serving is that as you go to be a blessing to somebody else, it actually shapes and changes your heart because it's in serving somebody else in need that we actually meet Jesus in a new way. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25 when he said, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. If you want to grow in your spiritual life, if you want God to shape your heart in new ways, go and serve somebody who's less fortunate, who's in need, who needs a helping hand and a caring heart. Secondly, uh, one way of taking that to the next step, and Sharon so uh, eloquently shared about it earlier, and we've been celebrating it all morning, is you can, you can go on a mission trip. You can get out of your own comfort zone, like I did when I was in high school, and you can go to a place where they live differently, where they experience the world differently, and that can open our eyes, and it can shape our understanding of the world around us, and God can come into those moments and change our heart from the inside out. Today, we celebrated our new life in Christ Jesus as we baptized uh, kids. And as we responded to God's call to go into the world, as we commissioned our, our missionary teams who were going out this summer, and we celebrated all of the ministries going on in ways that at Faith Covenant Church, we are trying to be a part of the solution and not the problem. My hope and my prayer for us as a church and for you and me is that we continue to allow the word of God to speak to each one of us about how we need to open our eyes and hearts to allow God to see how we can be a part of the solution. Amen? Let's pray. God, you have called us to be peacemakers, to be shalom builders, to be a part of your kingdom, building righteousness and bringing wholeness to your world. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have allowed our own lives and our own, shall we say, wealth to be able to blind us or to numb us from the reality of so many people in our world who do not have the wealth and the riches and the lifestyle that we have. God, as a church, would you open our hearts to the ways that you might call us to be a part of the solution, to be an answer to the prayers that we pray whether it be to go to a neighbor next door or to a neighbor around the globe, would you call us forward to be light in the darkness, to be a cup of cool water to somebody who needs a drink, to help meet the needs of the lost, the hurting, and the least of these, because we know, God, that that's where we will meet you, and because of that, we will be forever changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kurt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As has been shared this morning, we are blessed to be involved in so many various ministries locally and internationally.